good. And for those of you that are utilizing our children's ministry, we run that through first grade. You're most welcome to take your children back there now. Again, for those of you uh, whose kids are staying in the service, we love having them with us, so they are most welcome. We've been working through our confession of faith now for some time. We just read it paragraph by paragraph, the uh, London Confession of Faith, or as we uh, more commonly know it as the uh, 1689 and just by uh, way of instruction, uh, uh, this, th- these chapters are cumulative. And so, so uh, you know, each, each paragraph is assuming the information before it, right? So we're, re- you know, we're reading it in context of the confession um, as a whole. And, uh, and so we start a new chapter this morning. Um, and, and this is chapter 9, and it is on uh, free will. And this is what paragraph 1 says about the way in which God has uh, created us. It says, God has endowed human will with natural liberty and power to act on choices so that it is neither forced nor inherently bound by nature to do good or evil. And that's going to be said in the context of five other um, paragraphs that talk about how the fall of man has distorted or bent our will, but as it relates to the way in which God has created mankind, we're free according to our natures. And so, um, so more on that as we work through it over these next few weeks. But if you have your Bible, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, the Gospel of Mark. And we are going to look at a couple of verses this morning, verses 30 to 32. Uh, And what we are seeing this morning um, is the second prediction or prophecy that Jesus makes as it relates to uh, what he came to do, okay, his messianic mission and um, how it is that he uh, uh, was to redeem a people to himself. And so allow me just to read the verses and then I'm going to pray and then we will work through our text together. And so John Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, he penned these words. He says, Then they departed from there, and they passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed. And just by the, wor- by the way, this word would be, better translated as delivered or handed over. And I'll explain a little bit more why that is in a moment. But the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he's killed, he will rise the third day. Verse 32, but they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. We go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for Holy Scripture, thank you that it's everything that you wanted it to be, and Lord, that we can have confidence in it as we read it. We thank you that we can be changed by your word according to the power of the Spirit, and we ask for that now. Lord, we ask that you would give us spiritual understanding as it relates to the person and work of Jesus Christ and how that truly is good news for sinners like us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
these scenes uh, we, we've been looking at over the last few weeks, they, they, it's, it's kind of rapid fire. They, they happen uh, relatively quickly, one, one after the other. Um, we saw so far just in, in chapter 9, we see the, 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 the transfiguration. Right, the, the morning after the transfiguration, Jesus comes down off of the mountain and he heals the boy that is possessed uh, by the demon. And in so doing, we saw that he confronts unbelief. And now we see Jesus giving a teaching about the reason why he came. And, and as I said a moment ago, this is the second time that Jesus gives this plain teaching. The first time we saw him uh, speak of his death and resurrection, th this plainly was just a few weeks ago in chapter 8, verses 31 to 33. And he, he gave this plain teaching in light of Peter's confession that he's the Christ, right? The, the, the confession that uh, Peter was able to vocalize because the Father in heaven had revealed it to Peter, right? We see Peter say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and Jesus responds to this uh, by affirming it, especially when we read the other gospel accounts, uh, by affirming this confession of Peter. And then he follows it up by giving this plain teaching about what that meant what it meant for Christ to be the Messiah. And, um, and then in light of Jesus giving that plain teaching, uh, we saw Peter attempt to rebuke Jesus, right? Because it was so far removed with what Peter thought the Messiah should be and do. And Peter as kind of this spokesperson, this mouthpiece for the other apostles that were there, right? It was so far uh, removed from what they as a group and really what uh, the Jewish mind thought the Messiah should be. But uh, in the middle of Peter rebuking Jesus, kind of pulling Jesus aside to rebuke him, Jesus instead, right, he rebukes him um, for having uh, as, as being the one that has the distorted view of what the Messiah should be, what the Messiah should do. And, and, and so we see Jesus, uh, his um, preaching and teaching and, and his prophecy about his ministry was one in which he would be rejected by the scribes and the religious leaders, that he would be killed and that three days later he would rise from the dead. So we see in response to that, that Peter lacked understanding. We see that the other apostles uh, lacked understanding. And we see echoes of that same thing in our text this morning. Now, most of the gospel of Mark isn't focused on the teaching of Jesus. Uh, Mark is usually, as we've seen in our journey together, he's usually action focused, right? He kind of goes from one miracle to the next, or he goes from one exorcism uh, to the next, right? And, but there are times that Mark departs from that style, and he does so especially as it relates to Jesus's clear teaching about the purpose of his first advent ministry. Now, kids, when I say first advent I'm meaning the, the first coming of Je Jesus, what he did in his first coming for us. I, we're, we're now waiting for Jesus' second advent when he will come back and make everything sad come untrue, right? He'll do away with sin. He'll do away definitively with death and the world will be set right. That's what we're waiting for. But when I say first advent, I'm talking about what Jesus did all of those years ago when God became man. Now, 
The teaching that we're looking at this morning, it's also recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, and it's recorded as well in the Gospel of Luke. And although we're working our way through the Gospel of Mark and not through Matthew or Luke or John, I want to read some of Luke's account, and you can turn in your Bibles there, Luke chapter 9. I just want to read verses 43 to 44, because I think it harmonizes well with what our journey over these last couple of weeks. And I think it'll help us understand our particular text better this morning. And so look with me, Luke chapter 9, starting with verse 43. Luke, he says this, he says, and they were all amazed at the majesty of God. Okay, stop there for just a moment. All right, this is related to the boy that was possessed by uh, a a devil, okay? Jesus did what the apostles couldn't do, right? We looked at this last week. Jesus did what the apostles couldn't do because Jesus is God, right? And and we we saw that if the, the, the apostles had been dependent upon the Lord, which could have been evident through them praying and fasting, as we saw last week, then they would have been able to cast this demon out. Instead, they were functioning as if they were self-sufficient in some sort of way. Their faith needed to be placed squarely on Jesus. It was in his authority that they were to minister, and and, and they, they had to grow in their capacity to have that settled in their heart, okay? But Jesus, he comes down off the holy mountain, as we saw, and where where he was transfigured, and his face probably still shining in some way, and he heals this demon-possessed boy. He confronts the, the unbelief that was so rampant amongst everybody present, and in turn, according to Luke, the people marvel. Right? They were amazed, astounded at the majesty of God that was evident in Jesus. Now, what does Jesus do next? What does Jesus do next? Well, he doesn't waste any time, according to Luke. Look on to the, just the second part of verse 33, going to verse 44. But while every, and I love the way that Luke puts it, while everybody was still marveling, is is how Luke is painting it, while everyone marveled at these things, which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, let these words sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. It's as if Jesus is saying, if you're marveling at the majesty of God here, wait until you see what's next. All right, now, One of the reasons I wanted you to see this Luke account is because I want us to think back for a moment about what the Father said at the transfiguration. Do you remember? Mark chapter 9, verse 7. A voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, what? Hear him. Hear him. And in Luke's account, Right, We see Jesus telling his disciples, let these words sink down into your ears. In other words, do what the Father told you to do concerning me. Hear me. Hear me. Now, should we think that 
this command to hear Jesus is just with the organ that is our ears. Well, there can be some sense in which we need to be hearing, absolutely. But there's this spiritual hearing that Jesus is primarily after, a spiritual discerning. And that's one of the things that I think that we see in our Mark passage this morning. And if you're taking down notes and kids, you can look on with your parents. Jot this down. Grasping facts about Jesus isn't the same thing as having a spiritual understanding. Okay, grasping facts about Jesus isn't the same thing as having spiritual understanding. As many of you know, I like to read really old commentaries. Uh, A lot of what I read are from people that have been dead for a long time. Um, And there was this commentary I was uh, was reading that was, uh, it it was from a sermon in the 300s, John Chrysostom, uh, who's a bishop in the 300s. He had a helpful comment about our passage that I wanted to read to you just before we consider the passage more. He says this, or said this, It's remarkable how when Peter had been rebuked and Moses and Elijah had discoursed and had seen the glory of what was coming and the Father had uttered a voice from above and so many miracles had been done and the resurrection was right at the door for he said that he should by no means abide any long time in death but should be raised the third day. Even after all that, they, speaking of the apostles, they did not fathom what was happening. They didn't fathom what was happening. We found that to be so true as we've journeyed through Mark together, haven't we? Now, is this because the apostles were dense? Were they dense? Well, yes and no. They were not dense in that they were unable to intellectually grasp the facts of what Jesus was teaching them, but they were spiritually dense. They were spiritually dense. They understood that Jesus was telling them that he was going to suffer and die. Again, that's why Peter tried to rebuke Jesus initially, right, upon hearing that teaching. But here's what they didn't understand. They didn't understand how Jesus is suffering and his dying was going to usher in God's kingdom. Right? They didn't understand how Jesus' suffering and his dying was going to benefit them. That is where the, the, the density, the, again, the spiritual density, that's where that kicked in amongst Jesus' very own disciples. In other words, they didn't understand the spiritual significance of what Jesus's sufferings would accomplish. And by spiritual, I don't mean that the sufferings and death and resurrection of Jesus don't have any concrete effect that you can grasp. By spiritual, what I mean is that what Jesus did, it matters in this life and in the next life. Okay, his ministry had the long view in mind. Now, let's consider this further together. Contemplate for a moment the sufferings of Jesus, right? This, this ministry of Jesus, this ministry that just seemed so backwards, right? He was rejected, but by his very own people, 
Right? And we know this, again, at least intellectually we know this. He was despised by the religious leaders of the day. He was wrongfully accused, wrongfully arrested in the cover of night. He was given this bogus trial in front of this worked-up mob. He was flogged, literally beaten within an inch of his life. Then he was given the worst and and most shameful and torturous death that one could receive, death on a cross. It was awful. We, we, We can't fathom it. And it was so unjust that even a criminal, a, a, a thief that was also being crucified and deserved to be there, even he could see that Jesus didn't deserve to be there. So if we're honest, we could really, as we, we see how dense the disciples were, if we're honest, we can kind of see why the disciples wrestled with doubt. We can kind of see why the disciples wrestled with questions. Again, how, how would the, the sufferings of Jesus deliver God's people? How would the sufferings of Jesus usher in the kingdom of God? How could this possibly be what God wants? How could this possibly be what we have waited so long for? And we wrestle with those same questions many years later, don't we? The disciples didn't understand the answer to these questions truly until after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. But if we bring this to bear more on our lives, how would you answer these questions? What did the sufferings of Jesus do for you? What did his sufferings have to do with your sins? Again, this is where we have to have spiritual ears because this is impossible to answer apart from the Holy Spirit of God and the Word of God giving us insight into these very questions. Now, I want to take you to a few other places of Scripture to help us grasp these answers, but look back at Mark 9 with me for a moment because I want to emphasize a particular word and a particular title that Jesus gives himself as we seek to answer this question. First, the word, okay? Look at verse 31. We see this word in verse 31 that in the Greek is paradidomai, which is the Georgian pronunciation for a Greek word, in case you're wondering. But I, I mentioned this as we were reading our text earlier, but I don't think that the NKJV translates this word the way that it should be translated given the context. Okay, the the NKJV translates this word as is being betrayed. And, And the verb translated as is being betrayed, it's certainly right when used in particular contexts. For instance, we see that verb used specifically as it relates to Judas betraying Jesus in Mark chapter 14, verses 10 to 11. But I don't think that that's what Jesus had in mind here. And, and the reason for that is that the phrase is being betrayed is in the present tense. It's as if it's already happening. And while Judas is in the company of the disciples here, he's not yet set himself against Jesus. I think a better rendering is found in the ESV or the NASB or uh, for those of you who have the NIV, I think that the NIV gets this right and it's this, the son of man is being handed over into the hands of men. 
Or another good rendering, the Son of Man is being delivered into the hands of men. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because it helps us to begin to see better the spiritual significance of what's going on. Who is ultimately doing the handing over? Is a question that we should ask. It's the Father. It's God the Father. The reason why this is in the present tense is because the sufferings of Jesus at the hands of men, at the hands of sinners, is what God determined to do in eternity past. The very nature of Jesus' earthly ministry was one of being handed over. We could say this characterizes his entire earthly ministry. It was one of him being handed over. It was one of him being delivered. It's the whole point of the incarnation. Right? That's the only reason that God became man. One commentator says it like this. The verb here is inform a present and more likely describes something that is already taking place. God is already giving the Son of Man over into the hands of hardened in heart men. The death of Jesus has its source in God who sent his son into the world, but the cause of his death is to be found in the nature of men in whom he lived. What's one of the most well-known Bible uh, verses? John, yes, John 3, John 3.16, right? And that's such an important verse to, to know and to internalize. But have you considered the wording of that verse? For God so loved the world that he gave. That word gave is the same root word for what we're looking at in our text. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Right? God the Father, he gave. He gave Christ. Now, before we put this all together to, to answer our questions, look back at Mark 9 again with me. What's the title that Jesus gives himself? Son of what? Of man, son of man. It's a title that should be familiar to us by now, right? The son of man. So we see the son of man is being handed over or delivered into the hands of men. Now, how have we seen that, that title used in the gospel of Mark already? Well, we saw Jesus refer to himself as the son of man in chapter 2, verse 10, when he claimed authority to forgive sins. Right? We see Jesus call himself the son of man when he pronounced his authority over the Sabbath in chapter 2, verse 28. We saw Jesus calling himself the son of man when he spoke of the coming judgment of Jerusalem that we looked at a few weeks ago in chapter 8, verse 38, that he is the rightful judge. Right? After the transfiguration, Jesus told Peter, James, and John to be quiet about what they saw until the Son of Man is risen from the dead, verse 9 of chapter 9. And then just a few verses later after that, and a few verses before our text this morning, Jesus talks about his sufferings, and he connects that to being the Son of Man, verse 12 there. All right, every time we see that title used in the Gospels, it's Jesus referring to himself with the exception of like three times and every time it's used it is you it's a messianic title and it denotes the authority of jesus it denotes the authority of jesus jesus is the one who has authority to forgive sins and how is it that one sins 
are to be forgiven. How do we get our sins forgiven? It's a question I ask my kids regularly. And the answer to that is in our text this morning. It's through the son being handed over by the father to sin-hardened men. As I was studying for this sermon, I came across this comment from a commentator named William Lane. He says this, he says, God's redemptive will provides the key to understanding Jesus's passion. In other words, we have to see God's redemptive purpose in the person and work of Jesus, his dying on the cross and then his resurrecting, right, bodily and eternally from the grave. The reason the sufferings of Jesus, the, the, the reason the sufferings of Jesus, the death of Jesus benefited his people so greatly, it's because of what is unseen. It's because of what is unseen. No movie or show can capture the spiritual significance of the sufferings of Christ. Right? The sufferings and death of Jesus benefits us because God delivered him as the sacrifice for our sins. The sufferings and death of Jesus benefit us because Jesus is the one who has the authority to forgive us of our sins. And the way in which our sins are forgiven, the way in which our sins get forgiven, isn't by God pretending that nothing happened. Right? That would be a lie. That would be unjust. Sins must be punished. Sins must be dealt with. Otherwise, our God is not holy. Otherwise, our God is not just. Otherwise, we have no reason to trust him because his kingdom is arbitrary. In other words, his kingdom is much like the kingdoms of men. But Jesus, the son of man, who has the authority to forgive sins, he took our sins by the power of the Holy Spirit. He took every past sin. He took every present sin that you're struggling with right now. He took those sins that you're going to struggle with tomorrow. He took those upon himself and received the righteous judgment of God for them. Why did Jesus die in such a brutal way? I think the cross of Jesus was the most vivid way in which finite humans can grasp the seriousness of our sins and the righteous judgment of God. Right? Jesus experienced immense physical agony at the cross. But as we gaze at the cross, as you and I gaze at the cross, right, we should see if we have spiritual understanding and even greater agony, there's an even greater agony that happened at the cross. We should see there all of God's wrath, his righteous anger, his holiness being expressed in judgment there on the cross. It was a once for all sacrifice. All of God's wrath for sinners that he would save, was laid out on Jesus. All of them, all of them. God gave Jesus. He gave him. He delivered him over. And in doing so, Jesus accomplished our salvation. Right? But that isn't all that happened. Because when the Holy Spirit of God saves us, when the Holy Spirit of God saves you and me, when he takes our stony, dull hearts, right? These hearts that can't 
by nature discern spiritual things, when he changes our hearts and we respond to that change with faith and repentance, we're the recipients of everything that Jesus accomplished. So the sufferings and death of Jesus, they didn't just wipe our slate clean so that we can start over and try again, right? It wasn't God's way of rebooting the system. No, we now, you and me, those of us trusting in Christ, we now possess the righteousness of Christ. We have received and are receiving his inheritance, what he alone earned, right? Jesus did everything that the first Adam failed to do. Jesus did everything that you and I are incapable of doing. And we see that ultimately through his resurrection, right? A part of Jesus's plain teaching in Mark was that he, the son of man, would rise on the third day. Peter, who had such a hard time with this, And again, if we're honest, we have had a hard time with this. But Peter, who had such a hard time with this, he preached this sermon to the Gentiles after the ascension of Jesus. Look with me at Acts chapter 10, verses 37 to 43. This is the power of the gospel here, okay? Because as we read this in the context of what we know about Peter's wrestle, we're like, is this the same man? He says, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but... God has raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify, get this, that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Incredible. Incredible. So in order for us to grasp how the life, death, right, the descent, the resurrection, the ascension of Christ benefited you and me, we have to get beyond just the mere facts. We have to have spiritual understanding. Second thing, and more quickly, we see here that we can glean from this passage. Don't let your anxieties keep you from coming to Jesus. Don't let your anxieties keep you from coming to Jesus. Look back with me at our text. The Son of Man's being betrayed into the hands of men, and they'll kill him. And after he is killed, he'll rise on the third day. It has the plain teaching. Here's how the disciples responded here, verse 32. They did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. The disciples had their Savior with them, physically with them. But they were so grieved by this plain teaching, right? So grieved by what was to come that they, it prevented them from coming to him in their hour of need, in their hour of questions and doubt. They didn't come and inquire. They, they pushed everything down and they kind of 
resided in their anxieties. How could these sufferings of Jesus and the power of his resurrection be good news? The disciples had to be looking around at all that they were to face. They had to be looking around at all that they were presently facing, right? The opposition, the intensity of these authorized religious leaders that were so disapproving of what was happening. They had to look around at this teaching they had just received from Christ to deny themselves, to forsake all, right? And and to follow him. And in the midst of all of that, Jesus says, I'll suffer and I'll resurrect. As I thought about this passage, I thought back to the parable of the soils that we looked at together in Mark 4. Let me just read it to you quickly. Verses 18 to 19 of Mark 4. Now, these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones that hear the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things, entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Cares of this world is an interesting part of that. The cares of this world. The disciples had a lot of worldly cares. Now, this isn't to say that we should not care about the things that are going on here, right? Christianity isn't some form of of Gnosticism where all that matters is spiritual and we're just all waiting to, you know, move on from the material and the material is evil and worthless and we should just put it out of our minds. That's not the teaching of the scripture, right? We should care about the here and now. We really should, The problem the disciples had at this point, and the problem that we often face, is that we think that the gospel of Jesus, okay, his sufferings, his death, his resurrection, we think that is insufficient to address our worldly concerns. So here's what we do. We maximize our worldly concerns, and we minimize the person and work of Jesus. That's often what we do. We think he is irrelevant to the here and now. We think that he is in the periphery, right? This is what the text means when it says that the cares of this world, or the, some translations say that the anxieties of this world, they choke out the word of God in our lives. So don't do this. You know, uh, flee this way of thinking. It's a rut that's really, really difficult to get out of, right? Christ is Lord, and that means that he's Lord over everything, Right, Whatever it is that you're facing this morning, whatever it is that you're anxious about, whatever it is that you're struggling with, come to Christ. Come to Christ. Don't do as the disciples did initially. Don't not come to him with your worries. Don't not come to him with your fears. Come to him. Whatever the situation is, come to him. He died and he resurrected in this world. And that means that whatever it is that you're facing, you're facing it in a world in which Jesus rose from the dead. And if Jesus rose from the dead, then there's no place on this earth that his resurrection has not impacted. So come to him this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for time together in your word. We thank you, Lord, that What happened at the cross really did put us in right relationship with you. We thank you that your spirit is our guarantor, is our seal, preserves our inheritance, Lord. Increase our faith, increase our trust. Uh, For those of us with 
with wobbly knees this morning. God, that are struggling with questions and doubt and fears and anxieties, I pray that you would strengthen us, help us. And we love you and trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is the